This episode of the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast is brought to you by... Don't you hate it when this happens? Oh, I missed the mail today? Oh, bummer. Well, introducing the new Blue's Clues mailbox. He'll let you know when it's mail time. Mail time. The mail's here. Let's go. Mail time. Mail time. I mean, go. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. Warning, you may break out into spontaneous, adorable singing when hearing about the mail. Nick, 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 Nickelodeon. From Nickelodeon Studios in Burbank, California, this is the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Hector Navarro. Welcome to the podcast. My guests today are celebrating the 20th anniversary of one of Nickelodeon's most popular shows ever, Blue's Clues. Premiering on Nick in 1996, the show follows an adorable cartoon dog named Blue who would leave behind clues in a scavenger hunt for the audience to follow along with and a mystery to try and solve. Blue's Clues went on to become one of the most successful and highest rated shows aimed at preschoolers of all time. So grab your handy dandy notebook, park a seat on the thinking chair, and get ready to blue skadoo with Angela Santamaro and Tracy Page Johnson. <laughs> Amazing. I didn't even have to ask to do the voice and we got blue. That was so great. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for being here. How are you this morning? How are you doing? Delightful. Excited to be here. We are. We're very excited to talk about all of it. What kinds of kids were you guys growing up? Um, you know, I was an avid TV watcher. I watched a ton of TV, read a lot. I was definitely that type of kid, right, who was absorbing and, and watching everything and playing it out. Tracy? I was the, I'm definitely a TV baby too. Actually, I'm appalled as I'm a parent now of actually how much television <laughs> I watched. I'm like, holy crap. Uh, I was definitely happy-go-lucky, imaginative, loved creating, and just um, we had a big woods behind us. So I did a lot of exploring in the woods, making little fairy houses and talking to the animals. (laughs) Well, that just sounds so whimsical. That's amazing. That's great. What would your kid selves think of you guys now, these adults who have created shows that are arguably as popular as the ones that you watched as kids? You know, it's so funny. I always think that uh, if Tracy and I had met when we were younger, we would have been such a, an amazing duo then because we kind of do the same thing now in terms of writing. I'll write something and Tracy will start to illustrate and, and animate what it is that, that's going on inside my head and vice versa. So in terms of the way that we would play, I think we're just big kids, right? Still still playing. And I, and I think that that, um, if I think back, I don't think necessarily that my kid self would really believe that we're able to do this for a living, <laughs> um, but we definitely be proud and be happy about that. Yeah, I think my younger self would definitely want my older self as a babysitter. For <laughs> sure. And mom, like, she's so fun. She's cool. I like her. I love that. That's a great answer. I would want my older self as a babysitter. Yes, that's fantastic. <laughs> and as a mom, of course. Sure. sure. But I love my mom so much that I would never replace her. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have a first memory of animation? Something that you remember, the first thing that you saw as a kid, as a toddler, something that really struck you? Sure. I mean, mine was Sesame Street for sure, but I never gravitated towards the puppets. I always loved the animation is what interested me. So that was sort of my my first love of animation. And then my mom, she would wake me up because I really love the uh, Terry Gilliam cutout uh, skits in um, Monty Python. 
So I always love watching those, and um, certainly the whole cutout aesthetic came from that. You know, mine, it, mine is so funny. Um, you know, Cinderella was probably, we're very much um, who we are, right? So Cinderella was definitely my <laughs> first story in animation in terms of the level of fantasy and, and um, the story that that told. And I think that the other really big influence was definitely a little bit later with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, it was really something that was so interesting to me about being able to jump into to that fantasy world, and I and when I think back, I definitely believe that that had something to do with what the direction that we ended up going in with Blue's Clues because I love right that transformation, that fantasy, um, and kind of being able to have kids go on that that journey with us because that's definitely the type of kid that I was. One of my personal heroes, Fred Rogers, and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Guys, tell us a little bit about how these influenced you growing up, and even later, how they influenced you. Well, I'm going to certainly pass that one over to Angela, because <laughs> that is her home. <laughs> yeah, Fred Rogers was definitely uh, my mentor from afar. I think the interactivity, that idea that someone can break that fourth wall and talk directly to the camera and empower you as the home viewer. I was that preschooler, right, who felt empowered, felt like he was talking to me, and that's definitely something that I held on to. And then because of his child development background, I loved the fact that he had that. As I got older, when I realized that he had all of that ammunition, all of those tools that he could use when he's when he was writing and, and talking directly to kids was something that, that was important to me. And so when I started thinking about my career, it was, okay, how can we create, I mean, my dream, which I never really, I didn't really say out loud for a very long time, but that idea that we could do something the way that Fred Rogers did in terms of empowering kids with a show that they would absolutely love, right? That they would want a birthday party mm. made out of um, this show and these characters, right? And that also was so educationally salient and that would reach through the screen and empower the kids to believe that um, they could do anything that they want to do. So Angela, at what point did you decide to pursue a career in child development psychology? Was that something that was sort of a gradual decision or was there, did you have like an aha moment that you wanted to pursue that? You know, I was always the the babysitter. I was always around kids. I was a camp counselor. I started studying some child developmental psychology in undergrad and then in graduate school. And I started to combine that, right, with communication and educational technology and media to try to think about how you could intersect the two. And it's kind of, it was, it evolved over time. And then I started working right out of college while I was getting my graduate degree at Teachers College Columbia at Nickelodeon in the research department. And it was Karen Fleischel who was running that research department at the time. And I was just so in love with what Jerry Laybourne had set up as the vision for the company in terms of talking directly to kids and finding out what it is that they wanted. And so all of a sudden, the idea of studying child development and studying education, it all made sense, right, in terms of what we could do for the audience and what that information that I had, I would be able to hopefully someday, right, channel it into the programming, into my writing. Count to three. One, two, three. And clap your hands. Where did the idea for Blue's Clues come from? Well, I think Nickelodeon wanted to do a game show for preschoolers. That was the hit of, you know, Double Dare and the idea that they could do game shows so well. And they wanted to 
bank on that success, but for the preschool audience. And then Angela, with her research background, you want to tell the story? Well, the funny thing, too, is, it you know, you always think that the reason I get in, got into TV is because I hated a lot of what was on <laughs> at the time for little ones, right? And so everyone was pitching Jeopardy for preschoolers, right? Or literally a double dare for preschoolers. And it just used to make me insane, right? <laughs> and so Brown Johnson would see my face that I could not mask this, like, you know, <laughs> like, oh, my God. And she's like, all right, you know, what would you do? And so um, I wrote a research memo, pretty much, that was um, this interactivity, this put giving kids a preschool animated um, character that was as smart as they were, and then having this live action, right, with that Mr. Rogers as my inspiration, having a live action person be able to also play with that. But again, it was just like a piece of clay, right, that we definitely, between the two of us, needed to mold and um, start to create. So it started as this little experiment where we sat in a room for six weeks and yep. I think that I would write and she would and Tracy would design and we would just kind of bat the ideas back and forth to each other and take it into kids. Colors bright, colors bold. It's so amazing when you stop and stare. Colors, colors everywhere. Tracy, you were already sort of studying and developing your visual style of paper cutouts when you were in college, right? Yes, that is correct. I I um, found my passion of TV in high school. Actually, there was a um, after school program for kids. It was sort of like a Saturday Night Live for kids called Beyond Our Control, <laughs> where the kids got to write and produce sketch comedy. And I sort of had got the television bug there of making TV. Um, while on the side, always being, I, I call myself a folk artist. Or I did a lot of cutouts, and I would do like cutouts of Mr. T and like cutouts of like just crazy things. And then when we went to when I went to college. College, I knew I wanted to do um, children's television, so I went to Northwestern University and majored in television and film and minored in child development because I, too, had that passion of I just love schoolhouse rock and that you could teach millions of kids things and just that impact of even on myself that those short animations or jingles can just stay with you and they sort of embody you. Um, and I love the the power of television. So when I graduated, I knew I wanted to do kids TV. So I just came out to New York and did a lot of freelance work, like at Reading Rainbow. And then I just started pitching my animation thoughts and ideas. And it was actually Linda Siminski. This is right before Blue's Clues happened. She was at Nickelodeon. Um, she's head of PBS Children's now. And wanting to, you know, ask her advice, like, should I go back to animation school and become an animator? Or, you know, because right now I was just sort of producing and directing and APing, you know, children's stuff. And she's like, no, don't do it. <laughs> Stay, you know, you're going to lose your style. Like, you just, you know, you have a, this distinctive vision. If you go to animation school, you'll, you'll, you'll lose it. So I trusted her advice and um, just kind of continued my own thing, but while also just being, you know, a, a general children's producer and director. And it was, I remember, this is right before Blue's Clues got started meeting. I did uh, uh, shorts with Nickelodeon Animation, You to You had a show where they paired kids and animators together. Oh, cool. And I did some shorts there. That was a great experience. And then I got called in because they were looking for a creative producer and visual person and production person to team with Angela to help create this show. And we just hit it off immediately and had tons of ideas. And it was just 
perfect. So was the visual style for Blue's Clues already set? Was it already like so finalized in your head or was there a sort of process and what did it kind of turn into and what was no, that I think like? It, no, no, I think it, it, was, it actually was just created as we're talking about it and I think Angela hit the nail on the head that there was so much of children's TV that I didn't like and we <laughs> wanted to do, I wanted to do something different of, I was always inspired by the simplicity of Eric Carle and Leo Leone. Frederick was my, my um, inspiration growing up and just sort of very simple and graphic. So we knew we wanted the show because it was going to be slower paced, you know, just very visual and simple and a lot of breathing room and kind of create like a felt board that you could pick up things and move them around. And we were already in love with Tracy's style. We had seen some of the shorts that she had done. And mm. so we just wanted to give her that canvas to to play with. And then at the same time, looking at what, what the script needed to be in terms of the pacing. And we actually talked to Linda Semensky. Um, also, when we're ta- when we're like, all right, there's one thing to create a show and there's another thing to pitch the show to the network and to try to get the support. And so she was invaluable because there were definitely the the people that could see what we were doing and got it. And then there were the faces of people who just d- could not understand or visualize <laughs> what it was that we were doing. And so one of the things that we were we did with the once we had the pilot done, we actually showed the pilot and showed it to kids and then did a split screen of the pilot on one side and kids on the other so that anyone who had a question about how much blank space there was in the show, right? How quiet when we would when Steve would ask a question what that was used for because you would hear then the kids on the other side screaming the answers back to Steve and so it was very clear what it was that we were trying to do. It was very powerful because you couldn't argue with the kids. There it was. They were answering back and loving it and jumping up and down. So who were they to say, like, it's not working? (laughs) May I ask you a few questions? Yes. Who did you come over to see today? Stephen Blue. I see, I see. And why did you come over? To play Blue's Clues. That's amazing. You came over to play Blue's Clues. This just in. You came over to play Blue's Clues. I'm Steve. That's the news now everyone knows. How did the research that you guys did, how did it influence the format of the show? Oh, in so many ways. I mean, I think that um, in addition to the branding, right, the paw prints have an educational purpose in terms of following and understanding, putting together these three clues and having that as our bigger cognitive puzzle that we would do at the very end. But so there's a reason, there's an educational reason for having the notebook, for having it. But also we studied the formal features of television, right? So that we understood how kids watch and what it is that they needed to be handheld, for instance, through the series. So we created more of a string along narrative um, where we would have the story was much loosely based. And then we would have these, you know, little diversions that we would do in terms of the games that would let kids come in and help propel the story forward. So there were so many instances of research that either was the the business of television, understanding the formal features, understanding how preschoolers were watching, but then also literally the formative research going out to kids. We went out with the script to a group in a classroom probably like 15 times, you know, and Tracy would make little uh, icons of the games that we were playing so that we could really test it and we could rework it and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so research really, and the kids themselves really helped to shape the show and I think to confirm the success of it. And I think of research, I mean, if it weren't for the kids, we wouldn't have had Steve. This is a funny story (laughs) of, um, you know, Nickelodeon was awesome. We were so young 
they just kind of left us because <laughs> uh, the wobulous world of Dr. Seuss was being, you know, produced and developed and, you know. All eyes were on that. All right? eyes were on that. And there we were show. just in the corner, you know. <laughs> wait, what are they working on? Whatever. So we were never bothered by anything. Um, then when, you know, things started getting uh, rolling and, wow, this is good, la, 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 and we were starting to cast – um, Nickelodeon had a person, uh, a female who I think she was from another show, or mm-hmm. what was that story yeah. that they, mm-hmm. and they really wanted to use her and push her. And we had already started casting and we had found Steve and we, we knew immediately that he was going to be perfect. So they were really pushing for her and we were pushing for Steve. So what we did was we set up a research session (laughs) where we had the, you know, we filmed a little bit with this person doing the script and then we did some with Steve and then we showed it to kids and to watch their reactions, and they picked Steve. Woo-hoo. And we did it. Lo- we did it right there. We actually had kids in another room because oh, right. it had to be, you know, right immediate. Right, we needed to know the answer. And so kids were screaming to him, right, with the same script, more so than the other woman. And then when he left, when he came out of the room, he actually met those kids. <gasps> right. and they're like, did you hear me? You could hear me, right? You could hear me. Wow. I mean, it was just, and then he was mobbed, right? Like yeah. a rock star. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's like you can't, you know, it can't it was say no much, to the kids. Right. It was so much more powerful to have the kids there. Coming across Steve Burns, the incredible Steve Burns, and just knowing immediately that he was the guy, was this from an audition that made you guys know that this was it? What was that like, that, whole, that process of finding him? Nick was great. They We set up a little casting studio, and I think we looked at, is it 700, 500, mm-hmm. 700? And um, we set actually a screen up to look at. So during the audition, we didn't look at the actor. We looked at the screen because it was important to see how it looked when they would um, turn to camera and talk to us. Did it feel like he was really talking to me? Mm-hmm. And um, There was a difference because there was somebody else we were looking at who could make everybody in the room laugh. Right. But it wasn't necessarily right. really translating to the screen. And, you know, after looking, he, he just stood out. Um, and it was so cute when he first came. He was like a little skateboarder kid. He had long hair. And, <laughs> but he was he was so charming and um, just not pedantic in that way. He just seemed like a cool guy who— So talented, yeah. right? I mean, he's in every single shot and was able to, you know, find his eyelines and be cool in terms of talking directly to the kids. I mean, whenever we see a parody of Blue's Clues, we're like, well, it's a parody for a reason, right? Because like, he was so earnest in the way that he played it, which came across. Right to the kids, yeah. he was honest and genuine and whatever, as opposed to ridiculously campy and silly. Yep. Hi there, come on in. Blue and I have something really important we want to tell you. Oh, here goes. We are so happy that you are here. What was it like for you guys to see the fan reaction from just audiences that you're not even interacting with, but the fan reaction to Blue's Clues? When did you know that it was a hit? You know, the very first time we kind of knew, you know, because you're, you're building it and you think that um, it's working, but you're not 100% sure, even though you're taking it into kids, right? So we had mixed, the, my, our first indication was that we had mixed the show all night, right? So it was our fi- first show and we mixed it, um, and I guess we were done at like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, and, and at 7 o'clock or 8, 7.30, we went into the schools with the show, and so we had a group of 50 kids, and we put the VHS tape in. No. <laughs> 
And kids were freaking out, right? Screaming and freaking out. And then we're like, all right, like this is this is something. And then when we went into research for um, with Nickelodeon was doing market research, the parents were coming in with their checkbooks saying, how much money for me to keep this tape? Like, you don't understand. You cannot, I cannot give this back. Like, $500. Like, they were just crazy. And of course, what? we were like, nope, we need the tape back. Um, and then I don't think it was until we started getting phone calls. Nickelodeon started getting a ton of phone calls after we aired about why their kids were screaming from the other room, why they could hear them, and why we were showing the same show every day for a week, which was another thing about of you know that we wanted to do in terms of promote mastery and show the difference between the show in terms of the more you look, the more you see, and the more you interact, the more you learn. And so because we were doing things in a different way, we kept getting all of this, you know, everyone was noticing. And um, I think that was the first time we started realizing. Yep. And then it really were. hit when... Um, you, the merchandising sort of came out and you saw, you know, on the subway, you know, kids with their little Blue's Clues backpacks. And and then certainly being in the um, Thanksgiving Day Parade as a balloon, I mean, that was just the ultimate. For me, as a, as a little kid, I loved watching the balloons and that whole thing. And then just to have it come full circle. Well, and, and, also, and our fans, down. too. Like, the uh, when we first premiered, Steve was going to be at F.A.O. Schwartz, and it was pouring <gasps> yeah. rain. So we were like, oh, you know, I guess no one will show up. And the line was, like, around the corner five times, you know, to come in and see Steve. And, to you know, and you're just like, all right, yeah. this is bigger than, you know, than and we could even think. Then the live show, then when we started doing the live show, and then you had, it was like the Rocky Horror Picture Show of all those huge <laughs> audience of kids screaming back and yeah we were groupies i don't know how yes. many times i sat in the audience in radio city musical but uh, as many times as i could yeah let's talk about that fan base specifically i mentioned earlier repeating the first run episodes every day for five days in a row for the first week what was the reasoning behind that Repetition is the key to learning. Well, so yeah, there are two reasons. <laughs> One, the real reason, now that we can say it 20 years later, I think, is that we were going to premiere and we only had seven episodes <laughs> ready. <laughs> and we, everyone really wanted to get it out and get it on the air. And um, we also had had a ton of research that said, right, that, you know, the repetition is the key to learning and that this is the way to get to mastery. And Dr. Dan Anderson, who was a huge children and television researcher that um, we had on board working with us, had done a paper on it and also just basically said this would be an amazing thing if you could pull this off and you could do this because then we could make sure that kids are watching the same show and they're going to be interacting more and learning more if we were able to do this. And so there was a really great educational reason to do it as well. And so it just kind of all came together. And then I think when you do something that different at the time, right, you also get noticed, which is something that we needed to do in terms mm -hmm. of all the different shows that were either on Nick or in children's television even at the time. Mm -hmm. So that also was in our favor. At, at then. Right. And we, we, we did have to do promos that would show before each show saying like this is the first time you're watching this. <laughs> right, <that's> right. <laughs> repetition is the key to learning and we just but still Nickelodeon got tons of phone calls like the same show is airing <laughs> but the ratings would just go up and, and up, up. <laughs> <laughs> that's the ultimate uh, proof right there guys the ratings going up come on so did you guys have an older fan base of, a fan base of older kids or rather adults who didn't have kids that were just watching Blue Schools did you guys get any feedback from that side of an audience yeah, moms were in love yeah. with Steve, right? So he ended up being on in people's people magazines, what most eligible bachelor right, in New right. York, you wow. know. And they definitely they were in love with him. And you know, it's funny because we were hearing it now, right? Because our our demographic is um, is older, and they they talk about loving, you know, like just having this crush on Steve back in the day. 
Do you guys have a particular fan story or a fan experience or a moment that stands out as being really powerful or cool or anything? There's so many of the little ones of like like being on the beach and watching kids play with their you know sand and they were you know and they were playing in the sand with their with their bucket and their pal and like they were playing out Blue's Clues or you know or, or sitting in a restaurant and seeing kids literally play Mr. Salt and Mrs. Pepper and we're just like my mind is just blown because you can hear the stories but when you're sitting there and you're watching this go on right you're just like oh yeah look at that it's literally right around me in terms of that. Those fans. Yeah. Is that what yeah. you were going to say? No, my, my sad one, is, I mean, and I hate to be a downer, I, I just such a powerful story of just the impact. And as a parent now of just understanding, but I'll make it quick, just a, li- a letter from a, a, a mom thanking us. And her um, daughter had died of um, cancer and how much the show meant and how they buried her with her little blue and her little notebook. And it was just... You know, we just reached out and and thanked her. But that was, for me, like just the impact that you could have, that you could bring comfort and joy to a little kid who was going through something like that and to the parents. And it was just a beautiful moment. There was one mom who called us on voicemail while we were staying late one night. Our entire staff stayed late to write back letters because we had asked (laughs) at the end of an episode to have letters written into Stephen Blue. And we got, um, you know, tons. So we were writing back letters and we we got a call from a mom who was crying and saying that their child said their first words to um, oh. to the show. He was autistic and was not speaking, and he was, I think, eight. And so his very first words were to the show. So we were hearing, we were hearing tons of those types of stories, too, that were hopeful, heartbreaking, yeah. but hopeful. Well, the sun's a hot star, and Mercury's hot, too. Venus is the brightest planet, and Earth's home to me and you. Mars is the red one, and Jupiter's most wide. Saturn's got those icy rings, and Uranus spins on its side. Neptune's really windy, and Pluto's really small. Well, we wanted to name the planets, and now we name them all. I want to ask about the music and the songs on the show. The songs were so great, they were simple and lovely. Michael Rubin, Nick Balaban composed the music mm-hmm. and did the piano, I believe. What was it like working with them? What was it like hearing these songs and, and developing and creating this music? Well, one of the things, you know, talking about what we didn't like in kids' TV of how sort of a lot of kids' music on shows is saccharine and sweet and we wanted real <laughs> musicians. So finding these amazing real jazz musicians who were as passionate of exposing kids to real music as we were was just a dream come true, and they were fantastic. And they completely got the simplicity of what we were trying to do and our mission, and they just completely um, took it even further. And it, it was always it was always fun going down to um, the studio to do, create the songs and record the voices. And, and, you know, we really were a family because we had worked, we worked so closely together, and I think that even in the moment when we were all saying, all right, who can bark? Who can bark? And Tracy <laughs> can bark. And, we, and then also Mike— plays Mailbox, yeah. and Nick played Mr. Mr. Saul, right? Yeah. So it was like such this family Home affair. Homegrown, homegrown. Um, to try to get it all done. But yeah, they. I, what I loved about the music, too, is that they were able to take anything from an educational standpoint that we wanted to do and make it sound really cool, you know, and like really 
take it to another level and have real musicians come in and record a lot of, you know, all of the music. It was, it was, it was such a fun thing to do. And I think we all would go down as much as we could to, to be part of the process. That is so cool. Tracy, well, speaking about who could bark, who could do this, what kind of necessity did Blue's voice require? Where did you pull the voice from? What, what did you kind of do to develop that voice specifically for uh, Blue? You know what? I, I would not really a voice over actor. We were just doing the pilot and didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> and we knew she wasn't talking and we didn't want to spend the money of, you know, of hiring a real voiceover person. So for the pilot, why we just went around the room of who could bark and I could bark. <laughs> bark, bark. Uh, but did you do it when you were little, that voice? I, I definitely was a, I liked making noises and things, but I wasn't <laughs> like known for my for my voice or my silly voices or anything like that. But I, I certainly was animated as a little girl of, I could see like, bur, 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 like maybe, but I, I certainly didn't pull it from my bank of voices. Um, I think, you know, what it is, I don't think I could ever do a voice on someone else's show. I think we always say, like, the show is homegrown or it has heart, and it just comes from us. And Blue was such a a part of me in, in, in creating it that it, it just sort of who she is. So, And um, that's our favorite comment when people say they can see the love through the screen. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's probably my favorite comment. <laughs> Tracy, did you do the voice of Magenta also? Did you? Or, no, that no. was Quayley. It was Quayley. Chandra, who was, yeah, she was, she started as our, what, script supervisor and moved up as director. director. And now she's producing, executive producing, and creating amazing children's TV shows, as all, so much so, of our Blue's Clue staff is doing. It's so fantastic to yeah. see. Tracy, when you meet a kid, when you've met a kid, and they do learn that you're the voice of blue and you do a little <laughs> bark and a little blue, what is their reaction? Uh, if they're over the age of six, <laughs> really excitement, like, oh, my God, that's so funny. Oh, my God, bark, 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 bark. If they're younger, like if they're five and under, four and under, they just almost have a look of horror, like <laughs> that I ate blue. Like, what oh, is no. she doing? <laughs> like, I don't understand. Oh, boy. Um, I do have a funny story of the voice, though, of we were raising kids as we were making the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so fun. My son went away to school for the first time. And I was, you know, a nervous mom. He was away. And I get this phone call at like 1130 at night. And it's I see that it's him calling. And I'm <gasps> picking up worried like he's going to be crying. And he just starts laughing. Mom, mom, everybody found out you're the voice of blue. Can you bark for everybody? So I said, <laughs> go to bed boys (laughs) and hung up so it's fun to see it come full circle and it be cool to your kids me and you and my dog blue we can do anything that we wanna do we can do anything that we wanna do was steve leaving the show always planned to be something that would be addressed? Were you guys always thinking of having Steve's brother, Joe, come on and be his replacement sort of within the narrative of the show? Uh, How did Donovan Patton's performance as Joe change the dynamic in any way? Well, we cried. We cried for a little while first. <laughs> we never planned. We thought he would be with us forever. Yeah. You know, we, you Why know, would he ever want to leave? We were, Steve, why would you ever want to leave? Where were we? We were like 12 when the show started, right? Because yeah. yeah. 20 years later. <laughs> you know, and so the idea, we had so many more stories to tell, right? And so much more to do. And, and so when that happened, we were just kind of taken aback, right? And you look again at your staff I, and how I much remember fun him we're sitting having. in the thinking chair in my office and being on my the floor and, t- you know, just bowing down. I'm like, please don't go. <laughs> and then what we do, what we always do, right? We started writing, and I wrote the 
saddest episode that you'd ever, <laughs> that we could not air, that we could not do just to get it out. Um, and then we're like, all right, you know, when something, this is from Daniel Tiger, but when something seems bad, turn it around and find something good. And so we wrote um, the episode where Steve is going to college right, because we thought if he's going to leave, we're going to address it and we're going to get other kids to think like, I'm going to go to college just yeah. like Steve. That could be the best, Making that could it be a- the best thing that we could ever do, a reason why Steve would ever leave blue, this would be the reason. Right. Using it as a teaching moment. And so what we, can we get across? And we skidooed to college, quote-unquote, so we <laughs> showed kids like all the different buildings of things that you could be doing and studying when you're in college. And so then the idea of, all right, who would... We wanted Blue to be the one to choose the next, you know, who would stay with her. And so the idea that Steve had a brother kind of came to us. And then, yeah, I think we saw more people to 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 find the right person. And Donovan is just a delight. Like, he is an amazing human being and person and charming and sweet. Um, very little brother. You know? Right. Like, just <laughs> so, right. He was totally the little brother. And just that energy and sweetness. He was just a young kid, that young kid energy. And I think Matt Lauer really believed it when we did the Today <laughs> Show. And because then after the interview, and he was like, it's just so great that Steve's brother. And I was like, no. uh. I have a question. If you're going away to college, who's going to live here with us? Yeah. I was just going to ask that. Good question, Tickety. That is a good question. Well, Blue and I talked it over. And when I go away to college... Somebody really great is going to move in and live here. Right, Blue? Who is it? Who do you think it is? Joe! It's me! Yep, it's my brother Joe. Joe? Really? Can you explain why it was so important for the show to invite the sort of viewer's involvement, to have that interactive aspect to it. I believe so strongly that kids want to be part of the group. They want to be part of the the adventure and they want to be in the room where it happens. <laughs> um, and so that interactivity really helps to do that. And then it's also a way for us to give kids a voice, to empower them, and to get them to practice the the skills. It was a, The show is a, based on kindergarten readiness skills. And so instead of just modeling, matching, or sorting, or any of the, the games that we were showing, we actually let kids play. And that was, again, the inspiration that we wanted this to be a game show. And so yeah. as, as participants in it, the interactivity was really key. Right. And just like as anybody, you learn more if you are actually in it doing it rather than just watching from the sides. Absolutely. I mean, Blue's Clues is one of the first shows to interact with the audience. This was four years before Dora the Explorer did it. What was it like pitching the interactive aspect? Was there any sort of uh, difficulty in doing that? Or was it just like, yep, that makes sense. Cool. Let's do it. Yeah, I, th- I think that they weren't 100% sure what we were doing, but were definitely experimental, which was amazing, right? Again, to have somebody, to have Nickelodeon and to have the department to really embrace what we were trying right, to do. And be open-minded. And try it, right? Yep. And so um, when we were able to, again, go in and they could see what the reaction was from kids, then it all kind of came together and gelled and made sense, right? And because I think there's also a way to do it that makes sure that the kids are really interacting, and then there's a way to do it where you're where you're only kind of doing it halfway 
which other shows that have tried to model it after us are either doing it with a diff- for a different purpose, for a different reason, which causes a little bit more stress, which is a little bit different, or they don't necessarily leave as much time um, for the kids to interact, and then that breaks the illusion as well, right? So we definitely perfected it in order to make sure that we were constantly bringing those kids in. And, uh, and I think they got it because we just, you know, we proved it, basically. What has it been like for you guys to see this 20-year legacy? Proud mama. <laughs> just feeling <laughs> proud and excited that we could contribute something so wonderful to society and to kids and being as other shows were so impactful to us that we can be impacting millions and millions of kids and parents. Yeah, and then watching our staff grow, you know, we had a, um, we had a little celebration and I don't know, we had over 50, 50 people still come back and, you know, in tears saying how much they enjoyed and loved, you know, making the show and what, you know, what we were the part family of, that right? We were. Mm-hmm. And I think we really were a great, um, a great breeding ground, right? Because we were involved in everything. And again, it was homegrown. So everyone was witnessing everything that was going on. And I, and I think that seeing that and seeing what has happened since then in terms of the education, um, everything turning around and being more about education, so it seems. And then the interactivity, parents think when they see a show that's interactive, quote unquote, um, it's educational. So all And all of those things weren't there, right, before Blue's Clues. Absolutely. What is something that you guys would like to see in the future of children's television or programming or whatever the next thing is going to be? You know, I'm dying to do the real interactive Blue's Clues where <laughs> it's voice activated, mm-hmm. right? So we can literally be screaming at the TV and Steve would know exactly what to do. <laughs> now it's time for so long. But we'll sing just one more song. Thanks for doing your part. You sure are smart. You know, with me and you and my dog Blue, we can do anything that we want to do. Well, I guess that's the end of our play date. Tell us a little bit about projects that you're working on right now. Tell us what you're excited about. Tell us what you're working on. So Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood was something that was exciting. Again, like after Blue's Clues, it it was... um, it, you know, you almost didn't want to jump in and do something else next, right? Because it was so, we loved it so much. And so the idea of what else could we be doing? Um, and Linda Semensky at PBS was um, my saving grace in the sense of reaching out and saying, all right, you know, Super Y was actually the first show that we ended up doing after Blue's Clues. And she was, um, it was the best place to do Super Y beca- at PBS because it was mm-hmm. so educational and so pro reading. And then I had gotten to be able to meet the Fred Rogers company and they asked me about doing promoting Fred's legacy and doing a show that would promote Fred's legacy. So Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood became on PBS became another um, passion project for me. And then we've also done Wish and Poof, which is on Amazon, and Creative Galaxy, which is also um, on Amazon, that promotes the arts. Right. Yep. Yep. Working on that. And then also, I just finished a um, successful Kickstarter campaign for a food adventure series called Yummy Lou, because I love the idea of um, bringing characters and story to helping parents and kids, you know, have a healthy foundation of eating. So we're having a lot of fun with that. And then working with DreamWorks on some App Squad, which is a show, a coding show for preschoolers that takes place in the tablet. So a lot of fun things going on the horizon. And also talking to parents. I have a blog called 
Angela's clues. And it's that same thing that Tracy was saying, like the idea that we get what we were doing on the shows, um, kind of turning it and flipping it around, right? And talking to parents about why it's so sticky, you know, why why are things working and using that education um, to help in some of the parenting conversations that we have. That's been a really fun, a fun thing to do in terms of kind of, you know, we do so much work for the preschoolers that then bubbles up to the parents. And so then to be able to turn it around and talk to parents um, about what we do and why we do it and how, and how you know, as a team, you know, it takes a village, all of us together, parenting our kids. Can you give a little bit of maybe some advice to young creative people who are interested in going into fields like animation or child development? I mean, what's wonderful about being young and, and just starting out, you can get... Um, internships and entry-level jobs and all of that stuff and and mm-hmm. just sort of networking around. And my, my biggest thing is when you're networking, you know, don't think of it as you're looking for a job, but just ask people their stories because people love to hear how you got to where you are and and approach it from that frame and know that there's not one single way to get where you want to go and everybody has a story to tell and you can learn so much from hearing how people got to where they are in their journey. I would say, and I would say definitely, and also to be as unique and different um, as you can be, even especially when people think, don't understand what it is that you're, what you're talking about or that vision, because if you're just following the pack, right, we're just going to make more of the same. And the only way to make change is for us to be thinking about um, what it is that we can be doing. And I think with with other, with YouTube, with other things that are out there, you can also play and make make things yeah, and start, and just start, start that, doing it, which is make really it. exciting. And I think that was the best thing for us, too. I mean, we didn't have a huge budget. <laughs> That's why Tracy started parking. But, you know, just the idea that you can you can develop and sculpt and create something and, and get it out of your head, I think, is a really great thing. And so I'm constantly telling telling people to just start writing, just start doing, just starting to, like, cobble together your team and, and try to make it happen. Well, guys, I think that we're just about, about wrapped up and just about running out of time. But you know what? Something doesn't feel right. I feel like I need to do something before we do a sort of a sign-off. Oh, I know what it is. Now it's time for so long. So We'll but we'll sing, sing just one more song. Thanks for doing your part. You sure are smart. You know, with me and you and my dog Blue, we can do anything that we want to do. Well, I guess that's the end of our podcast. That was a pleasure. Thank you so much. So long, Angela and Tracy. Thank you so much for sharing some of your time today. This was fantastic and lovely. And you guys are awesome. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Angela Santamero and Tracy Page Johnson from Blue's Clues. It was absolutely lovely. Big thanks to Tracy and Angela for coming on the show, sharing some of their time and their passion and their wisdom and their insight. It was fantastic. Everybody, if you want to catch up on the podcast, go to nickanimationpodcast.com for all the previous episodes and a bunch of cool behind-the-scenes extra good stuff wherever you're getting your podcast from. Thank you so much for continuing to like, share, and subscribe. If you'd like to leave a review, We really appreciate it. It helps us out. Thanks to the awesome crew who puts this podcast together. This podcast is produced by Jonathan Highlander, Dana Vasquez Eberhardt, Kelly Smith, Andrew Hubner. Original music by Useful Creatures. This week's episode edited by Josh Caldwell, Jonathan Highlander. All of the incredible social media for our podcast is made by Narbe Manassians, Sammy Armager, David Watson. And thanks to the man who works at controls and makes me sound better than I have a right to, Manny Gralva. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Nickelodeon Animation Podcast and keep watching cartoons.